0: Mike Leach, a very famous, well-known football coach, passed away. And what happens in those circumstances, as you are very familiar with, is that anytime somebody of notoriety or fame or influence passes away, then it sort of sets off a a plethora of opinions about that person. All of a sudden, everybody is posting their thoughts and their warm wishes, their, their prayers, not only for the family, but also their thoughts of the person. And so for those of you who do not follow college football, Mike Leach was a very well-known college football coach in Mississippi and in other regions. And uh, so being that, one of the opinions on Mike Leach that you know, gets a lot of ink or, or gets shared quite a bit is another football coach, a guy you may or may not have heard of named Nick Saban. And Nick Saban, if you don't follow college football is sort of a big deal. He says of Mike, uh, he says, Mike's infectious personality and passion for the game have impacted the sport in so many positive ways during his career. His passion for the game. That's what Nick remembers about him. And it's an interesting phrase because Mike was very passionate about football. It's also interesting because Mike was also very peculiar, all right? He had a lot of oddities about him. He wasn't just passionate about football, but he was also very passionate about pirates and law and history. And that came out uh, whenever he was being interviewed in different ways. Passion is a strange thing in leadership or in celebrities. Everyone says that they want that type of thing. Someone who is passionate, but when passion is expressed by leaders or by celebrities or by famous, it actually makes us uncomfortable. We don't actually want our leaders to be passionate. We think we do, but we don't. It makes us uncomfortable. I used to live in a context in which Mike Leach was talked about quite a bit more than he is here. All right, he, he, he definitely affects where he coaches and, and the teams here, uh, they, they definitely have an interplay. But he used to live in the same region that I lived in. And so Mike was talked about a lot in the news and in the media and sports, not only sports, but just in, in, in media. And I've, I've got to say, in the years that I spent in that region, as Mike was spending in that region, it was rarely ever talked about his passion for football. It was almost never talked about. His pirate thing is what most people talked about. It was that odd passion, that, that strange part. What I'm saying is, we want leaders that are passionate, we just kind of want them to be passionate about what we want them to be passionate about. Don't stray. You can be really excited about this thing, but don't really get out of our expectations for you. You need to kind of run in the lane that we want you to be in. If you were to describe Jesus, I'm not sure how many of you would use the word passionate or expressive or emotive. I mean, honestly, if you were to paint a picture for me in words about Jesus, I'm not sure that you would use those words. And yet those are all true about Jesus. We just allow our expectations, our Our conceived um, sort of idea of what the Messiah should look like overshadow what the Christ actually did look like, what he appeared to be like. And so today, we're going to look at an episode in which Jesus was passionate. In fact, it calls him zealous. And if we are honest, many of us will be confronted with an emotion about Jesus that we don't feel comfortable with. We're not sure we like Jesus this way. But it's there. And understanding Jesus as he truly is helps us to understand what it is that we are truly expected to be. Let's pray together. And then we'll look at John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. If you're online or in the room, would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Encourage us, God, to see you as you really are. Lord, we don't do it on purpose. Most of the time, it's just an accident. But we are guilty of building a a facade, a mirage of what it is that we expect you to be like, your characteristics and your personality. God, I pray that we would see through that, eliminate it. We would see you as you really truly are, as God who took on flesh so that we would have a model, so that we would know, so that we would have a friend to walk in this life with. So God, it is imperative that we see it clearly. So help us to do that. Give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So far, this is going to be the third sermon in this series. The first sermon, we dealt with the prologue of John. You remember that? Verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, in which the author, John, Tells us this is, this is what I'm going to talk about, y'all. This is, this is the idea. This is the story that we are about to cover throughout the rest of this gospel message. And, and he's very careful to tell us that what I'm about to tell you about Jesus is that he was full of both grace and truth. It's a phrase that we can say real fast, but the reality is we like the grace part of Jesus. We love that part, we love that part of Jesus. It's the truth part that often kind of uh, makes us bristle a little bit. When Jesus confronts us on our shortcomings, when Jesus says, this is the way that it should be, this is the way that you should live, always knowing that Jesus is full of grace, he'll help us get there, he'll encourage us to get there, but he is definitely getting us to some there, right? That part we bristle. We don't don't like that grace and truth part. Last week, we, we unpacked a little bit of a story in which Jesus is introduced as, you remember, the son of Joseph, the son of God, and the son of man. And in that story, we saw Jesus stepping into a particular culture and time and place. It was a Jewish culture during the first century. And that culture, time, place, people, is very much at play. In our story today, particularly beginning in verse 13. Let me read this text to you. You can read along if you wish. It says that the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Side note here, real quickly. John uses when we're reading throughout the gospel of john john uses the 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 term jewish or jew as a designating term we read it really quickly but you ought to pause just a second in your mind and note what john is trying to do is set up a contrast between the jewish faith and the christian faith those who are reading the gospel of john they're christians this is much later this or not much later but it's about half a century later and they are reading this as christians Everybody in the story is a Jew, all right? So when John says the Jewish Passover, he's particularly trying to get your mind to think that's something different than my faith. In the temple, he found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen, and he also poured out the money changers' coins, and then he overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the story. This is what Jesus does, all right? This is the least part of who he is. This is what my friend would call the hard edges of Jesus' perfect personality, all right? And this is the part that makes people uncomfortable. We like Jesus being kind and stoic. We like him saying nice things. We like him being like Mr. Feeney with little words of wisdom that, that come to us, but then at the same time being like a really cool brother that, that sits with us uh, on the tailgate of our truck and he's just kind of there for us, right? We don't like to think about, sometimes we just push it off to the side that sometimes Jesus was passionate. He was emotive he expressed how he felt and you knew it there was no questioning that as one quick uh, exegetical side note like a commentary side note that i found funny this week that i wanted to pass on to you is that there is a lot of ink and a lot of commentary some discussion on why it is that jesus whipped the sheep and the oxen but then he says to the dove the people who have the doves get these things out of here why didn't jesus whip the doves and so they had, a, they had a lot of commentary on that, which I feel like is wasted commentary because I think it's pretty logical why you wouldn't whip a dove, all right? I mean, you can hit an ox and it's gonna move a little bit. You whip that dove, it's over, all right? And Jesus had no beef with the dove, all right? And so, he just wanted it out of there. And so, I just found that funny. There are a lot of commentaries that really break apart. Why didn't Jesus not hit those doves? I find that to be people who have never seen a dove. Verse 13, remember that context I was talking about and the Jewish Passover was near and so Jesus went to Jerusalem. Here in a week or so, not tomorrow, but the Monday after, my family and I will travel and we will travel to another place. When we go to that place, we are going to be traveling home. Like many of you, you will travel home for the holidays, right? That's a, there's, a, there's songs that say that. You go home for the holidays and so we will go home. And that's sort of the way that we think about travel during the holidays. Many people may even ask you, are you going home uh, for Christmas or or Thanksgiving, that sort of stuff. Jesus is traveling during the holidays. But what's very uh, important is that we recognize and accept the idea that Jesus is not traveling home. Jerusalem is not Jesus' home. Jerusalem is away from home. Jesus is traveling away for the holidays. And it's not to visit family, but it is in order to worship. In this verse, Jesus's context and setting is really brought to the front there, that he is going to Jerusalem, that's not his home, in order to participate in a holiday, in a holy day. He's gonna go to Jerusalem in order to worship. That's the point, that's the context of the story. So as we're reading this and everything that comes from that, understand this, Jesus is going to a place in order to worship. Everything that's gonna follow is going to fall into place with worship. Right? That's what's going to happen. And he's going to celebrate a very particular holiday. It says the Jewish Passover. We talked about this last week. If you want to read the origin story of the Passover, you go to Exodus chapter 12, in which it is celebrated. And when the Jews were freed from Egyptian slavery, one male lamb or one male kid, uh, a goat, not a child, a goat is killed and the blood of those animals is put on the doorposts and the families that are found within that home that are covered by the blood, then they escape death. They are given life. That's the story that happened. That is what happened. And God is so emphatic repeatedly. He says, every year at the same time, on this same day, you are to remember that. You are to remember the time when the death angel passed over the homes that were found underneath the blood. It's very important. It's like you love being married to your spouse. That's a good thing. But every year on your anniversary, you celebrate that thing in particular. That's what God had set up that's what he introduced here and so Jesus as any good Jew would do would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover in order to make a sacrifice and to pay a tax to pay the temple tax it was required of every Jew over the age of 20 and so that's what Jesus goes to do it's just that when he gets there that's not what he finds it says that in the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and, and he also found the money changers sitting there. In order for us to understand this story and in order to understand this context, we as Americans, most of us are Americans, we as Americans need to uh, redefine or, or, or fill out the word here, Temple. When I say the word temple, most people that I preach to have sort of in their minds, if you were to make a correlation, you would make the correlation to this room, the one that you are now sitting in, a sanctuary, a worship center, something along those lines. And so if you think that way, when you read the rest of the story, you got oxen and sheep and doves inside the building, right? And that that can be a a bit um, uncomfortable. It also can lead us to different conclusions. But the temple that Jesus is talking about here. The temple that Jesus visited is a 14-acre complex, all right? It's a temple complex. I think the Holman Christian HCSB uses the word complex, which I really appreciate. And so you would think about like our entire structure, our campus, not this room. That 14-acre complex that Jesus visited at that time had these areas, and there was this outer area where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were supposed to go. and worship. That's, that's as far as they could go. And then you would go through a certain entryway, and then there was another area in which the Jewish women were allowed to worship, and that's as far as they could go. There was another, yet yeah, another region in there in which the Jewish men could worship. And then you had the building, the building that you kind of have in your mind, it doesn't look anything like a Mormon temple, all right? So if that's what you have, it doesn't look like it. It looks like a big box. And inside of that building is where, or and right outside of it is where the sacrifices were made. And only the priests were allowed to go inside of the building, all right? So that's sort of the complex. That's the situation that's going on here. And so if you were to try to draw some sort of correlation, if you were trying to Im- image this in your mind uh, to our campus here, you would kind of picture our campus, but think about the parking lot and specifically think about the visitor parking spaces. All right, so we have visitor parking. And so imagine that at the visitor parking, we uh, invited everybody to come and worship, come and be a part of the church. And then once you got here in the visitor parking, we just put up uh, a bunch of livestock and uh, we sold livestock in that visitor parking. That's sort of what Jesus walks into, sort of, all right? That's the best that we can do. Jesus walks into that setting and what he finds is not worship, but greed. He finds all of this stuff going on. And I really want to explain this because it's important for us to get to the application. They are selling oxen, sheep, and doves. And that sounds like a horrible thing to do at church, if we were to say it that way. Shouldn't sell livestock at church. And yet it's not a horrible thing to do. That's not Jesus's problem with what's going on here. He doesn't have a problem buying these animals in fact it's even likely jesus bought one of those animals in order to sacrifice it see it was a matter of convenience that's what was going on in this situation these people were traveling to jerusalem and if you're going to travel to jerusalem let's say you're going to sacrifice a lamb in order to celebrate the passover and that sort of stuff it's difficult to go several hundred miles with a lamb right a one-year-old baby lamb is they don't walk hundreds of miles, and they don't have uh, gooseneck trailers or four-wheel drive. They are going to just put this thing on a leash and take it with them for several hundred miles. And so you could imagine that many people would decide instead of bringing the livestock along with you, I'll just buy one when I get there, right? It's like my packing strategy, right? If there's a Walmart in the town that I'm going to, then eh, I mean, I might forget a few things, but. There's something there, right? And so that's what they decide. They're like, well, I'll just buy one when I get there. That's not a problem. The problem is that this thing is required by God for the worship, for the celebration of the Passover. And they were selling it for convenience, but they were upselling it. So if a lamb cost, I don't know, five bucks, they were selling it for $60. And so this put an undue burden on people they were using religious for religion for greedy purposes, and the money changers, is also not a problem. Like I said, every Jew over the age of 20 was required to pay a tax, small tax, and it was in order to keep up the temple complex. That's what they did. At the Passover, you paid a little bit, you gave a little bit, and that was in order to keep up, and it was good, and it was fine. You could not use Roman currency or Greek currency to pay this tax. Reason being is that on those coins, there was an image of a false god. So it's not a good look. You don't use a false god coin in order to uh, pay the temple tax. It's not a great thing. And so what you do is you'd go there and you're required to do it. You would take your Roman currency and exchange it for temple currency, which did not have those false god images on it. And then you would take that currency and pay your tax. That's the way that it would go. So in both of these cases, they are set up there for good reasons, for necessary reasons, for religious reasons. And yet they were charging, of charging significantly for the tax and for the animals. And that Jesus did not appreciate. And then there's that last element where they weren't doing this right outside of the gate. They weren't doing this off to the side. They literally took up the entire part where the Gentiles were allowed to go the only part they're allowed to go, they filled it with oxen and sheep. Essentially kicking out those who were not like them. So there's a race, there's a culture, there's a financial element to all of this and Jesus just will not abide by it. Sometimes when we misread these texts, we try to apply them to our lives and we think, well, I don't have a, we don't have a temple per se. We're not under the sacrificial system and we're not paying we're not paying a temple tax. So then how does this apply to me? And sometimes people will say, well, then this means, this verse means you can't sell things at church, all right? And that's just not a good application of it. Sometimes in this church, other churches I've had people get upset because the youth are selling t-shirts for their mission trip or, or there's a scripture journal that's available for you or there's a, there's a coffee mug that you might get with the second logo on it and people are like, that's wrong. Jesus would overturn these temple tables, they tell me. To which I would say, we don't have temple tables, but, and I don't think he would. Because there is, uh, there's no problem with the idea of providing something and you're covering the cost of it. That's, that's what you're doing. When you buy that little scripture journal, you're covering the cost of that scripture journal. Furthermore, and this is the biggest element to keep in mind. You don't have to get one of them scripture journals if you don't want to. You don't have to get a coffee mug. You don't have to get a t-shirt. If you don't want to, those are just optional. All right. They had to do this. And so they were using, leveraging God to be greedy from other people. And man, you can tell right from the beginning, that's not a good idea. You ought not do that. And so it says there in that next verse there, after making a whip out of cords, he drove out everyone out of that temple. It's important for us to really sit in this space. You really need to know this is the way Jesus is. You may not like it, but it's the way he is. Sometimes, you wouldn't say this, but I think we want to default this way. We want to we soften him up. We want to make Jesus nicer. We hear this text and we think of, generally Jesus is a good guy. He's nice. Almost always, Jesus is nice. And yet he went to this time and it just, it just got the better of him. You might say that. And we, we say that in a way that's trying to be like, helpful to Jesus. He just it just he just lost control. All right, Jesus is great. I mean, he's perfect, right? But he just lost control. That's the way we justify the feelings that arise within our hearts because of this text, and I'm going to tell you, listen to me very carefully, Jesus did not lose control. Jesus does not lose control. Nothing gets the better of Jesus. What Jesus does, he does on purpose. And he does for a purpose. It says, after making, your text may say fashioning, after fashioning a whip, everything that happens after this was premeditated. He meant to do it. And he meant to do it for a reason. Jesus is completely in control of this situation. It says that he was zealous. Look at verse 17, and his disciples remembered that it was written zeal, for your house will consume me. This is a great text. It's a really cool part to think about because typically something Jesus does and the disciples are standing around going, I have no idea why he just did that. There's like, I don't get it. Later on, they're gonna go up and ask Jesus, why are you talking about bread so much? You know, that sort of stuff. Or uh, like when you were really mad back then you mad at us, you mad at that guy. We're talking about seeds and farming and stuff. You're not a farmer. Why do you keep talking about seeds? You know, that sort of stuff. They don't understand. And yet here's one of the rare glimpses where the disciples see what Jesus does and it is dramatic and it is huge. Can you imagine you show up to the temple with Jesus? You just think you're gonna have a great time. He starts beating people up, you know? You're standing up there like, I don't know. I, I don't know, you know, that sort of thing. But they don't do that. They step back and they go, I know exactly why he's doing this. I get it. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, Because zeal for your house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult you, God, have fallen on me. Jesus is doing this because he's the Messiah. He's going to clean out this temple. It does raise a couple of questions, though. What is house? What does it mean by house? Is Jesus just really passionate about the building structure itself. He really likes this house. He's claiming that this is my father's house. This is my dad's house. This is my house. I'm going to clear this thing out. And, and maybe so, but it's not the building. It's not the stones. It's not the gold overlay. It's not the floor plan. It's what happens in that house. This place is set aside as the place that would worship God. And so Jesus is passionate about God's glory. But there's another implication to the word house, right? It's not just home, building, structure, or what happens in the home or the building or the structure, but it's also people, the house of God, the household of God. We use that. If I was to tell you the house of William Wallace, you're not thinking of a a structure. You're thinking of a clan of people, right? And so he is passionate about God's glory and he's passionate, zealous about removing every obstacle that may get between God and his people. It's what God is. That's what Jesus is doing in this text. The word zeal or, or, or zealous or zeal is also not one that we often use. I don't, I, I was trying to think of a time that we would use the word zeal in a positive light. We don't. We'd, if you were to call somebody a zealot, you don't mean it good. You mean that they're fanatical that they're sort of crazy. And the reality is the word zeal has two implications. One can be negative connotation, that they are zealous in a bad way. And that's born from ignorance usually. Or a person can be zealous in a good way. And that's born from enlightenment. They know what is true. And they're gonna stand in that space and they're gonna fight in that space. It means an intense dedication. Paul says that he was zealous when he was killing the Jews, when he was killing the Christians. He was also zealous afterwards. Nobody would ever claim that Paul was not earnestly dedicated. Titus 2:13 through 14 says, "While we wait for the blessed hope, what is that hope? What is it that we are waiting on? The appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ, he gave himself, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works." The word eager there is zealous in the Greek. I'm not telling you that the Greek word means zealous. I'm telling you the Greek word is zealous. That we would be passionately dedicated to good works. And so it begs the question, would anyone ever accuse you of being zealous for your Christian faith? We used to call them Jesus freaks, all right? We used to go, the generations before me did the same thing. You know, I'm not saying I'm that old, but it was a thing. It's a thing for a long time. But would anybody ever, ever accuse you of being a Jesus freak? You might say, I don't know. I don't even know what that looks like. Well, I think it's the kind of person that would leave money on the table because the deal does not align with their integrity and their characteristics. It's the kind of person that will say it when somebody needs to be defended or they will not say it if it doesn't need to be said. They're the kind of person that says what they mean and means what they say, regardless of what the expectations of that person are. Look, Jesus does not fit the mold of a Messiah. He didn't fit the mold for the disciples. They were constantly confused about the way that he was saying things and the way that he was acting because he didn't fit their mold. Listen to me, this is very important. Judas betrayed him because he didn't fit Judas's mold. He wasn't zealous enough and so he betrayed him. Are you that kind of person? So there's not much else to say about the text, but what it does say is about Jesus. What does it say about Jesus? You know, John included this so that we would follow him. What it, was say, what it says about Jesus is that he's passionate, that he's emotive, that he's expressive. And that's a, that's a good take. You remember the little uh, WWJD question mark uh, bracelet thing? Y'all remember that? What would Jesus do? The idea is used in discipleship that no matter whatever circumstance that you're in, you would ask yourself, what would Jesus do if he were standing here? If Jesus was alive, if Jesus was faced with these circumstances, what would Jesus do? And then you're supposed to do that thing. And that's great. Look, I am not knocking that at all. You should do what Jesus would do. But there's a couple of implications in that that we really need to think deeply about. The first one is this. It it assumes you know what Jesus would do. Right? It assumes you know that. And I think this text alone challenges us because I don't know that you could paint a picture in which many of you would go. I think you know this story, we all know this story, but this is not the top characteristic. I'm telling you that what would Jesus do in this circumstance? It is at least an option that he's gonna beat somebody up, all right? It's at least an option, and yet that's not the way that we operate. It's not the way that we would assume he does. We think he's very stoic. He's not gonna be passionate. He's, he's surely not gonna, I mean, he's a leader. The other thing that we really need to question about that what would Jesus do comment is, do you notice that the way that we always build it is what would Jesus do if he were here in my circumstance, with my experience, with my understanding, what would Jesus do? Do you see how we accidentally, nobody's doing this on purpose, but we accidentally always make ourselves Jesus. Jesus is always in our circumstance. What would would Jesus do? Because I'm kind of like Jesus in that story. There's another question. Is not what would Jesus do in your circumstance. What would Jesus do about you in that circumstance in the first place? What would he say to you? Maybe it's not how you need to respond to the reality that is around you. Maybe it's how Jesus is trying to do something to you in that circumstance. And I think right here, what Jesus would do is be passionate, Zealous about removing whatever it is in your life to get you closer to God, to bridge that gap. And so it makes us ask this question because this is what John says he's going to do. I'm going to tell you a story about the word. I'm going to tell you a story about the son so that you would believe in him, so that you would follow him, so that you would orient your entire lives around this guy. So would you? Would you follow that kind of leader? Would you follow the kind of guy that dumps the money on the ground, whips the oxen, and turns the tables over? Some people think it's barbaric. Some people think it's not the kind of God that they want to follow. I would say, that's exactly the kind of God that I want to follow. I want to follow somebody that is passionate, who will stand up for you, who will defend you, who will say what is right, who will do it, who means enough, To lay it all out there. So, would you follow a Savior like this? I would offer to you, this is the only Savior worth following. So, that's what it says about Jesus, but what does it say about us? I think we should, and we need to, ask ourselves a simple question What are the obstacles of worship that Jesus would want to get out of our lives? There's a bunch, I'm sure. As many people are in here, we probably each have our own little obstacles, big ones, small ones, all that kind of stuff. But from this text, one jumps off the page and slaps us in the face. And that is, don't shoot me for this, but that is greed. It's hard not to see. These people wanted more, and so they took advantage of other people for financial reasons. They wanted more money, and so they mistreated other people. This can be a hindrance in your worship. First Timothy six, nine through 10 says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptations, a trap and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. The Bible constantly warns us about greed. And it's not just a desire for more money. It's just the pursuit of more, more. It's like, I don't need this, but I want it. I want more of these things. They make me feel more whole. They make me feel better. They make me feel secure. They make me feel safe. They make me feel strong. I want more. I want more. I want more of these things because they give me, I think, what I should only find in God. God. That's greed. Martin Luther, the reformer, says, greed worships money, but godliness worships God. It is tragic, and it is a reality, that Christmas is largely marked by greed. And I know we don't like saying that. I know we don't like people pointing that out, and you sure don't want a preacher to point it out. But largely, Christmas is marked by Greed. We have indoctrinated ourselves and our children their entire lives about greed, and tying Christmas to greed. I can point it out, and listen to me, your Christmas list is not a sin. Let me just say that. And how kind and sweet you are to children is not a sin either. But think deeply for a minute. From the moment they can talk, we ask them every Christmas season, what do you want? For Christmas what's Santa gonna bring you what do you want for Christmas it is the most common question we ask children from a very small age and so of course we all grow up thinking this entire thing is about what what I want when we get a little bit older and we have more adult conversation it all turns into what are you gonna buy your children what are you getting your spouse what is it you want what are you going to get yourself for Christmas? Again, I'm not telling you that you're sinning. That's not my place to do. That's the Holy Spirit's place to do. I'm also not telling you that your list is bad. There could be a lot of things on your list that are just born from pure adventure or entertainment. You could just want that thing because, you know, you want to worship more. You want like a new study Bible. I'm not saying it's bad. You're like, I got a Bible. Is it a sin to have another Bible? I hope not. All right. I'm just telling you, maybe you should ask that question. When you look at the list, is this born out of I just want more or is this born out of some sense of amazement or adventure or entertainment or worship? The sad reality, the tragic world we find ourselves in is that Christmas is largely about greed and it ought not be. See, what Jesus finds when he goes to the temple is that worship was not being done because there was all this stuff blocking it, blocking the people and blocking the hearts of the people and that he could not abide. A little over a year ago, our hot water heater, I know that's redundant, the water heater uh, broke and uh, it didn't work. And so the pilot light went out and all that kind of stuff and I went up there and couldn't figure it out. And so I did what any good Conwegean does and I called Jay Fraser. And he came and put a new one up there, and that's great. But then a couple of months later, uh, it stopped working again. Thankfully, it didn't, like, burst. There wasn't water everywhere. It just stopped working again. And so I go up there, and I, I, uh, I start the pilot light, because I'm at least that handy. I start the pilot light back up, and it worked for a little bit. And then it went out again. And so this time, I went up there and did a further, more thorough investigation, and by a thorough, more, for, uh, more uh, thorough investigation, what I did was turned on the lights and looked around. And I noticed that the, the, the drip pan was full of water, all right? That's not how that's supposed to go. A drip pan is supposed to collect water and then take it away. And the older I get as a homeowner and as a dad and as a father, I realize this, water is the enemy of everything I own, all right? I hate water. Don't want water standing nowhere. If there's water in my house, I want it going down a drain, all right? And I noticed this and I look at this and I go, this is a problem. But I can't figure out why is it not draining. It wasn't pouring in there. It wasn't overflowing. There's just water had collected from somewhere. And why isn't it draining? So I go outside and I stick a stick inside of the, the little you know pipe that's supposed to be, and nothing comes out except for mud, dirt. How did dirt get in the attic of my house? So you know I did it as much as I could do. I stuck a stick in that pipe. And so I called Jay Frazier, and he brought out bigger tools and better tools. And we cleaned out that pipe. He found a small little leak, but even that leak was not a problem. He fixed it that fast. The leak wasn't the problem. The problem was that the drip pan wasn't taking the stuff out it. It was blocked. And the blocked water was cutting off the pilot light. So we blew that line out. All that mud came out of there. Obviously a dirt dauber, some sort of wasp or something, built a nest inside of there. What Jesus determines and what we are going to give you guys an opportunity here is that stuff had blocked what was supposed to be. And so the question is, what is blocking your worship? This Christmas, is it greed? Is it, is it some sort of pain? Is it, is it a, a, a misplaced identity or reality or passion? Is it hatred or lack of forgiveness, whatever it is? We're about to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. And First Corinthians tells us that before we take the Lord's Supper, that we need to examine our own hearts. What that means is that you need to go in there and do a more thorough investigation. You need to walk into your heart and your mind and turn the lights on and look around. Is there anything in here that is blocking my heart toward God? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday.